Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We're going to start a new series today. We do this every year. It's a little feedback, Kevin. Um, we do this, this series every year. We call it You Asked For It. So we, asked, uh, we pass some cards around uh, a couple months back and we ask you guys, what would you like us to talk uh, about? Uh, what do you want to know more about? Or what topic has really impacted your life that you wish more people knew about? So that's where we come away with these topics. And we have some really good ones this month. Uh, we're beginning with one today. We'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, it is, uh, what is the significance of the veil being torn when Jesus died on the cross? So what is the significance or the importance of the veil being torn when Jesus died on the cross? Now, uh, this event is recorded in three of the four Gospels and all of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it's also referenced in the book of Hebrews. Today, we're specifically going to look at Matthew's account of this event that takes place. Now, for context, before we read, uh, Jesus at this point has lived on the earth for around 33 years. He's been in ministry for three, three and a half years. He's done countless miracles, healings, signs and wonders and teachings. But now he has been betrayed and falsely accused. He's been brought before Pilate. He's been beaten, a uh, crown of thorns placed on his head, and he's been nailed to the cross. Luke's account tells us that right before what we're about to read, uh, is the moment where Jesus looks at the criminals, uh, the one to his right and his left, and he looks to the one and says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And then right after that, we get to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came, came over all of the land. Uh, about three in the afternoon, so this is the end of that darkness period, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lemash Sabathani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were guarding, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you speak this morning and that you open our ears and our hearts uh, to, to receive your message in Jesus' name. Now, before we uh, dive specifically into the meaning of the curtain being torn or the veil being torn, I want to share with you something out of this passage that I find really fascinating. Now, if you've been here any amount of time, you know that I like whenever we find uh, kind of historical evidence or archaeological evidence that supports the scriptures. And one of those... Uh, uh, that's because one of the narratives in our culture is that the Christian faith is a choice between faith and reason. Or it's the idea that our faith goes against all reason. But this actually couldn't be further from the truth. If, if people will actually open their eyes and search the scriptures, 
uh, and be open to it, what we'll find is history actually supports our faith. There is a lot of evidence, overwhelming evidence for our faith. Two things have to happen. First, you have to search for it. And the second thing is what most people won't do. You have to accept it when you find it. So what we find in this moment is an example of that. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make reference to these three hours of darkness that take place when Jesus is on the cross from noon until three. Now, I believe this was a foreshadowing of the, the burial and resurrection, that Jesus would spend three days in the tomb. It would be kind of three days of darkness. And on the third day, he would rise again. So that third hour, there's lighting. And I think it's a foreshadowing of that. But the question is, if something like this actually took place, would anyone else write about it other than the gospel writers? I mean, that's kind of a supernatural event, right? The, just the middle of the afternoon, it's dark for three hours. And the answer, you, you might have guessed by now, is yes. Actually, other people have written it down. If, uh, the first I want to talk about is a famous Greek historian. His name is uh, Phlegon. Uh, he was a secular historian. What that means is he was not a Christian. He was not writing anything to hold up the scriptures or to support. He had no agenda to support the scriptures. He wasn't even a believer. But he wrote around 137 AD, so about 100 years or so after the crucifixion. Uh, we have this in, in recorded history. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that year we actually know was 33 AD. So the, uh, the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great eclipse of the sun, greater than had ever been known before. For at the sixth hour, which is noon, the day was changed to night and the stars were seen in the heavens. So we're talking about legitimate darkness in the middle of the day, so much so that you can see the stars in the sky. But then there's more than that. He goes on to say, and there was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. So this earthquake is also mentioned in the scriptures. We have um, extra biblical or outside of the Bible support for what's taking place when Jesus is on the cross. We have references to three hours of darkness at the time of his crucifixion and earthquakes. Uh, there's another one I want to show you. This was a, a world-renowned third-century historian named Julius Africanus. He wrote this referencing that same event. He said, on the, on the whole world there, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his histories, explains away uh, the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. Now, this guy that he references here named Thallus uh, is an earlier historian that we don't have the writings to. But because so many people quote him, we know a lot about him. We know that this book he's talking about, this third book of histories, is called the, History, uh, the Histories of the Mediterranean World. More importantly than that, we know that he wrote his writings around 52 AD. He wrote his writings about 12 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was actually living in those moments where the, the, the sun disappeared and the world went dark for three hours, and we have it on reference, again, outside of the Bible, just the histories supporting the scriptures. And Africanus even quotes him and then adds, 
but he called it an eclipse, which just doesn't make much sense to me. That doesn't seem reasonable to me, and that's because that's not what it was. But church, there is so much evidence for the word of God. There is so much evidence for our faith. It is faith, but it is not a blind faith. It is not a blind faith, church. Now, that's not our primary focus this morning. The Bible says, after that darkness, around 3 p.m., Jesus gave up his spirit. Or Mark's account simply says, he breathed his last. And then Matthew 27, 51 says, at that moment, so the moment that he breathed his last, the moment that he gave up his spirit, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The question that we're exploring this morning is why? Why did that happen? What did it mean in that moment? And what does it mean to me and to you 2,000 years later? Now, uh, as I was studying uh, just this subject this week, um, I was surprised by the, the amount of interpretations people have for the meaning of this event. Um, I, I've always been taught as far back as I can remember just one interpretation, and uh, I kind of walked away with that initial understanding being uh, fortified, but I do see some merit for the other interpretations, so I wanted to share those with you. Uh, sometimes scripture has layers of meaning, uh, it, it can mean more than one thing, and that's what could be in this case. But one of those ideas of what, what it meant when the veil was torn, uh, some people believe it was a reference to a Jewish custom uh, that in moments of grief, people would rip their clothes. They would grab a hold of their clothes and they would rip them. So we find this first in Genesis 37. You remember the story of Joseph in the coat of many colors and his brothers come and say, hey, he was killed by wild animals. Verse 34 says, when Jacob heard this, he tore his clothes and he mourned for many days. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, when David was told that King Saul had died, the Bible says in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 1, David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and they tore them and they mourned and wept and fasted. And one more in Job chapter 1, when Job finds out that his family had died, the Bible says that Job got up and he tore his robe. Uh, so in Jewish customs, when someone took, took a, a hold of their clothes and they ripped them, uh, it was an indication of great mourning or just incredible moments of grief. And many people suggest that because the temple was the house of God, that the moment that the veil ripped from the top, of the, uh, top to bottom was actually uh, this action being portrayed on a divine scale, that it was the moment Jesus gave up his spirit that the father expressed his grief for the pain that his son had just endured. Uh, another idea that's drawn from the Old Testament dates back to the days of Moses. Uh, in the days of Moses, uh, the presence of God was... It dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. There was uh, no temple, so what they had was a, a tabernacle, which was sort of a mobile temple. Uh, and there, when they had to move the Ark, one of the things that they had to do was take down the curtain, take down the veil, and place it on top of the Ark. Numbers chapter 4 tells us whenever the presence of God was on the move, they took down the temple. And that's one of the only times, or not the temple, the curtain, that's one of the only times that the curtain ever came down was when the presence of God was on the move. So many people suggest that this symbolism is present when the veil was being torn, that it was an indication that the presence of God was on the move. Now, whether this was intended in that moment, it is true, the presence of God was on the move. It wasn't going to dwell in the temple made by hands anymore. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 
tells us that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our bodies are the new dwelling place for the very presence of God when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, with all of that said, uh, we can wonder about the symbolism in the Bible, but we don't actually have to guess at what the tearing of the curtain means because the Bible tells us what it means. The Bible is clear uh, with what it actually means, the intended meaning. But to understand that, I want to start with the initial meaning of the curtain to begin with. In Exodus 26, we find Moses instructing, or God instructing Moses for the building of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was a location where sacrifices would be made, where they would uh, worship, and as I mentioned, it was where they would store the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God dwelt. Now, specifically, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was to remain in one room in the tabernacle that was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And it's regarding that room that God gives Moses instruction in Exodus 26, beginning in verse 31. God is speaking to Moses. He says, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and uh, finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with golden hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Everything's very specific. Then God says, hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant of the Law uh, behind the curtain. The curtain will se separate the holy place from the most holy place. This was the intention of the curtain. This was the intention of the veil. It was to be a separation of the holy place from the most holy place. I have a, a picture if you want to put that up, Silas. Uh, if, if you can tell, this is just kind of uh, an image of what that might have looked like where you have a holy place here and beyond that curtain, beyond that veil, which was said to be somewhere between four and ten inches thick, would be the presence of God. So in this first room here, um, Basically, any priest could go in that room. Uh, there were many people who could go in that room, but beyond that room, beyond the curtain, was reserved for one man, the high priest, and he could only enter that room on the Day of Atonement. If we were to go in Leviticus 16, we would find many, many very, very specific instructions on what that looked like. But what I want to do is look at Hebrews chapter 9 because that kind of summarizes it for us. Begin in verse 2, it says, A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This place was called the holy place. We just looked at that in the image. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So that outer room, any priest could go in there to carry on their ministry. But, verse 7 says, only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that the people had committed in ignorance. That the high priest would go in once a year, and he would come in with blood from a sacrifice that he would sprinkle on the mercy seat, the Bible says, and that was the only way that he could enter. That's what it used to be like. And then in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews transitions to what it looks like now under Christ. It says, but when Christ came as high priest, he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered uh, himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So what we hear, uh, what we have here in Hebrews is it's saying that Jesus through the cross, through what he did on, on the cross, went into the holy place on our behalf. But rather now than needing to send someone in over and over once a year just to cover up our sins, the Bible says that Jesus went in once for all. Meaning that we don't have to go in there annually and sacrifice an animal to cover over our sins because Jesus went in there for our eternal redemption. And what we have in this transaction is an image of the very grace of God. In Romans 3, uh, Paul sums it up. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, why are we redeemed? Verse 25 says that because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. What we find is the animals that were sacrificed once a year in the Old Testament, that's out of the way now because God sacrificed his own son, Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, through the shedding of his blood, all we have to do is receive him by faith. But what does that mean for us today? In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us this. It begins with this word in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, because of everything that we've just explained, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because he went to the most holy place for us, therefore, because of all of that, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Do you see what that says? Because of what Jesus Christ did, we can now enter the most holy place where there used to be a barrier to protect us because of our sinful nature. We are now dressed in the righteousness of Christ and we can enter the most holy place. There is no barrier between you and the manifest presence of God. Any barrier separating you from Jesus Christ is one that you have raised back up because Jesus tore the veil. Don't put the veil back up, church. Jesus tore the veil. You can enter into his presence. I'm going to continue there. So therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, then verse 20, by a new and living way opened up through uh, opened up, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest uh, over the house of God. So the Bible is saying now that there's a new curtain. There's a curtain that has been torn for us. It's been ripped and it is the body of Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done, we actually enter into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, after this, what we have is three let us statements. So uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, because of all this, 
let us, and then he gives us three things that we should do in response to the knowledge of what's taken place. First, he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. He says, let us, in response to what Jesus has done on the cross, draw near to God. What that means is to a certain extent, the ball is in your court now. He is calling on you to draw near to him. He has paved the way. He has cleared every obstacle. Will you take the time of day to draw near to God? And then I love this, uh, with a sincere heart. Do you know what that means? You don't have to put on a facade. You don't have to come and say, uh, pretend to be someone that you're not or pretend that you didn't mess up a whole lot this past week because you probably did. Your pastor did. We all do. But the reality is we can draw near to God with a sincere heart, no facade, and draw into the very presence of God. And then he says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. One of the greatest barriers to us entering into the presence of God is our own conscience our own guilt and our own shame that we bring into the church every single Sunday. Church, lay it at the door. Lay it at the door and step into the presence of God. You are dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. It is not by your own works. We'll move forward to verse 23 to the next let us. He says, and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, profess for he who promised is faithful. You know, Renee and I, we don't, uh, I don't say, hey, uh, this is what I'm talking about this week. Can you do this song, this song, and this song? But uh, there's someone called the Holy Spirit who says, we should sing a song called Always Faithful because today we're talking about the faithfulness of our God who does not break his promises. And the Bible says if he has been faithful in this moment, faithful on the cross, the Bible says he didn't have to stay on the cross. He chose to stay on the cross for the joy set before him. That's you, church. And the writer here is saying if he was faithful in that moment, you can hold unswervingly to every promise he makes that he will be faithful in every promise. On to verse 24, Renee, you can come up. Uh, he says, and let us, consider, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And what we actually have here is kind of context is revealed to what he's talking about, that hope that we profess, that he says he's going to be faithful to. We find it here in verse 24. He's saying you should encourage one another and you should spur one another on as you see the day approaching. What's he talking about, the day approaching? He's talking about the day of his return. Because the reality is, he is coming back. But what they're saying here is, there are moments where he can't get here soon enough. And as believers, we should be encouraging one another in those difficult times, in those challenging times, in times of grief, because there is grief on this earth, church. But the writer says here that we can be certain of his faithfulness and as believers we should be encouraging one another the hope we profess church is that he is returning and if he has been faithful in every moment up until this day he's not going to stop tomorrow 
And if he said he is coming back, he is coming back. And if he, is, if he has placed a promise in your heart, church, he will be faithful to complete it. We can trust. We can stand on the promises of God. Can you stand with me? I don't know what uh, Renee's going to lead us in here, but I'm going to challenge you to do something. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. This morning, in this moment, my challenge to you is to close your eyes if it helps. Get on your knees if it helps. Whatever helps you, draw near to God. You say, Pastor, I had a terrible week. Lay it down, church. You're not approaching him based on the goodness of your week. You're approaching him based on the goodness of our God. And this morning, you can draw near to the manifest presence of God because the veil has been torn on your behalf. Can somebody say amen? The veil has been torn on your behalf. and on your words, God, we step into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and we say, Lord, would you meet us here? Could we experience you this morning in your presence? Church, in your heart, draw near to God this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.